politics, the bush and the future of our regions. You're listening to Weatherboard and Iron with Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan. Well, welcome back to another episode of Weatherboard and Iron, a podcast series with Barnaby Joyce and myself, Senator Matthew Canavan, uh, where we talk about issues affecting the whole of the country, particularly those in uh, affecting country Australia. Uh, today, I'm having a conversation with a very eminent uh, Australian commentator, Greg Sheridan, a foreign affairs writer with The Australian. How are you going, Greg? Great, Matt. Great to be with you. Well, I hope I didn't talk you up too much there, mate, but you've been, I think, the foreign affairs editor at The Australian for nearly 30 years now. That's a that's a, that's a long stint. Uh, so yeah. so how did you get that that gig and how have you been able to keep it? Well, uh, my, so Matt, my, my formal title, and we're very formal in journalism, is foreign editor. And I've been foreign editor since 1992. And I joined the paper in 1984. So I've been 36 years continuously with The Australian. So I am, for all your light young listeners, I am the absolute rebuttal of the proposition that you need to change your career seven times uh, in, in any lifetime. But Matt, uh, to answer your question, as long as I can remember, really, I've wanted to be a writer. Uh, I became very, uh, fell in love deeply with words as a kid, uh, was always reading, was a very bookish kid, you know, poorly coordinated physically, the shape of a sort of, a, you know, uh, an unappealing potato uh, with all the physical coordination of a stale blancmange and uh, words were my world, really. So I always wanted to be a writer and... Uh, I studied law at university and uh, went to work briefly part-time at a law firm and I thought, dear God, this is the most boring existence any human being could ever have. And from that moment, bent myself fully to the idea of becoming a journalist. I got a cadetship at the Sun. I left that, the old Sun, Sydney Sun newspaper, left that to go to university um, and talked my way into a job at the Bulletin magazine after doing some freelance writing for them. It was five years there. Then in 1984, I joined The Australian. And I was always profoundly interested in foreign affairs because of the Cold War. So I was intellectually a child of the Cold War. And um, I joined The Australian in 84, and I was sent as their China correspondent, their first ever China correspondent in 1985, and then the Washington correspondent in 86, 87. So if you're a Cold War person, Foreign affairs was your natural ambit. I mean, I was interested in the communists in Australia too. And uh, so then in 1992, Paul Kelly suggested uh, that I become foreign editor. I very briefly had administrative responsibility for the foreign pages and the correspondence as well as writing columns, but I'm a great delegator, you know, and I quickly got rid of all that and just remained a writer. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating story, Greg, because I wasn't so sure. I've read a lot of your uh, material. I wasn't sure if uh, you'd come to the role with a, with a, I suppose, specific and distinct interest in in foreign affairs, or, or whether it was just a broader uh, 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 journalistic career. Um, and maybe that might explain a little bit of uh, of why I think you do have a distinctive style as a foreign affairs editor, because I. I don't know if I'm correct in this diagnosis, but I, I do find there's a species of people around that, uh, uh, if you like, from the foreign affairs community, uh, and uh, uh, you know they're often uh, they're often uh, decried as like in cocktail parties and those types of things. I'm not sure if you're from that set, but it seems to me you do bring sometimes a different viewpoint on these issues than some of your your colleagues. Am I am I wrong about that? Does that is that is that? Oh no, that's true. I I certainly wouldn't say anything disparaging about my colleagues, but 
Before I became the foreign editor, I was, uh, so I've been writing a weekly newspaper column since probably 1986. I think I've inflicted weekly columns on the Australian people for a shocking length of time. <laughs> and, um, and before I became foreign editor, my columns dealt a lot with culture. They certainly dealt with politics. I got mired writing about education for a while and uh, got very bored with that. But foreign affairs, I was tremendously interested in it, but also I, I sort of moved into it having been a kind of a rather opinionated, uh, somewhat um, ideological commentator, again, absolutely formed in the Cold War. So my career was back to front, you know. I started as a generalist, in a sense, declaiming yeah. on the state of the world, and then went into the specialisation of foreign affairs, although special, foreign affairs is so broad. And then, you know, it took me, I, I was very determined when I started in that area to establish my credibility, so not to make every column polemical or ideological, but to really try to master uh, foreign affairs, especially in relation to Southeast Asia, because I saw you could really, as an Australian, you could really do first-hand reporting in Southeast Asia in a way you couldn't in London or New York, you know, you couldn't really talk to cabinet ministers in, in London or Washington or even Tokyo or Beijing, but you certainly could in Jakarta and Kuala Lumpur and Singapore and Bangkok. And uh, so I really spent, and, and I fell in love with Southeast Asia, partly Christopher Koch's book, The Year of Living Dangerously, led me to that. And um, so, I mean, it was a bit of happenstance, but I, I never lost the cultural views that I had. And getting deeply involved in Asia, I didn't try to become an Asian. I mean, I was a an Australian of European background and, you know, Catholic religion and so forth. And I think because I was reasonably happy and secure about that identity, I could really engage very, very deeply with an Asian identity. And, um, and so, I, you know, the first 20 years of being foreign editor, I concentrated overwhelmingly on Southeast Asia. Very, very happy to have done that. But you move through different different seasons, of course. Different issues become important. Mm, and I, I did want to talk mainly today about, I suppose, the, the more cultural uh, 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 writings and, and views you've had. You haven't slowed down writing on those issues, uh, including recently, uh, which we'll get to on the coronavirus. But I wanted to take a step back to... I suppose the pre-coronavirus world, which seems a long way away now, but you wrote a book recently called God is Good for You and recommend that to, to everybody. It's a fantastic uh, uh, description, really, of the importance of particularly Christianity, but religious religion more generally. And I wanted to argue, I wanted to ask you here about uh, how is uh, that, that, that travel, that, that foreign affairs specific career, as you've said, influenced the, the more general commentary you've made about uh, the role of, of religion, say, in the world? What have you seen when you compare how religion is viewed in Western societies, which most of our listeners will be familiar to and with, uh, with uh, how religion is tracking or, or viewed in, in, in Asia or other parts of the world? Yeah, Samantha, I think that is a, a quite a, a, a critical difference there, how it's viewed in the West and how it's viewed elsewhere. Uh, of course, I wrote the book partly because I believed it was true and I believed it was a great subject and uh, I thought, you know, I wanted to write about the most important subject. And, of course, as you get older, you realise that your your um, your encounter with God is uh, is getting a bit closer. So, you, you you know, you think, gosh, a lot to live down with 40-plus 40, 40 years in journalism, you know, uh, 
Very few journalists become uh, saints. Very few journalists, uh, after a life in journalism, embrace holy orders or anything like that. So uh, a bit, a bit to make up on the on the negative side of the ledger there. But uh, the point you make though is very, very true. So in and it worked for me in two ways, leading me to this subject. First of all, there was the Asian dimension, and then there's the Western dimension. So in Asia, of course religion is central to life in most parts of Asia. The idea that you could, uh, in Indonesia, be embarrassed about the Islamic faith is bananas. Uh, with my last book, um, Before God is Good For You, I went to a whole lot of writers' festivals, and I noticed that not a single one was in favour, had been written about or in favour of either Christianity or Judaism. And I thought, imagine going to an Indonesian writers' festival and not having a single book which touched on Islam. It, it's in, it's inconceivable. Or in Thailand, not having a single book which touched on Buddhism. Or in the Philippines, not having a single book which touched on Catholicism. And a lot of the, you know, sort of, uh, I don't mean to be disparaging, but a lot of the galahs in Australia, Matt, who talk about getting close to Asia, the one thing they've never done is get close to Asia. Because uh, you'd find that um, on a whole raft of issues, you know, profound cultural issues like religion, but even policy issues like climate change or national sovereignty or something. Uh, folks in Asia have the views of Robert Menzies. They don't have the views of, uh, of of Adam Band. And then, but there was another way foreign affairs led me to this subject as well. I did become fascinated by the Brexit story. And of course, you always write a lot about Washington and the United States. And it seemed to me clear that the Western world, meaning Western Europe, North America and Australia and New Zealand was in something of a political crisis and that was really uh, caused by a cultural crisis. And the cultural crisis was the loss of belief uh, or I believe that it, that was a central part of the cultural crisis. So to come to grips with what was happening in Western politics, I had to look at the culture and the key thing in the culture is that um, Westerners have abandoned their belief. Now, as you say, all the rest of the world, that is not happening. Religion is on fire in Asia, Christianity in particular. It's the one thing the Chinese Communist Party can't control. All through um, South Asia, Central Asia, all through Africa, Christianity is on fire. Islam is uh, expanding. Uh, Buddhism is strong. The only place where religion and belief in God are in decline is in Western Europe, North America and Australia and New Zealand. But I thought my political writing about the West also led me into this cultural, this area of the cultural crisis, as it has led a lot of other writers, you know, Douglas Murray's The Strange Death of Europe and a whole lot of other uh, books like that uh, have also come in their own way to the same, uh, the same sort of issue. And your, and your contribution, I think, is a, is a, is a worthy one alongside uh, those. Um, if I could play devil's advocate, which I suppose is a appropriate metaphor in this ah. case, um, uh, I mean, others, some would say, I suppose secularists would put that, well, the experience in Western society is as we become wealthier and 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 and, and the wonders of science and technology have got rid of a lot of the, the problems of poverty and and, uh, and, and despair, uh, at least from a material viewpoint, uh, religious uh, 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 religious uh, commitments have, have declined. Uh, so do you think something similar will happen potentially in, in Southeast Asia or Asian countries generally or... Is the belief there stronger, you think, and, and, and won't necessarily follow the same trends as we've seen in some Western societies? 
Very interesting question. Uh, 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Asian Values, Western Dreams, which really asked the question, in order for Asian societies to modernise, do they have to westernise? Do they have to become culturally, uh, you know, Los Angeles as they become rich and modern? And my tentative answer then was, no, they don't. And I think they're going to maintain their traditions pretty well, uh, even as they become more affluent. Now, uh, the, the loss of belief in the West is something I deal with a lot in God is Good For You. And of course, I think the idea that religion is superstitious and modern science liberates us from it is completely wrong. And I was greatly influenced by a wonderful Oxford historian, Larry Sidentop, and quite a lot of other historians too, but particularly him who, who argues, I don't think he's a believing Christian, but he argues everything we like in liberalism, in modern liberalism, is directly uh, an outgrowth of Christianity. So even secularism, render unto God what is God and to Caesar what is Caesar's, human rights, uh, feminism and the rights of women, universality of human nature, all of this comes directly out of Christianity. And the Enlightenment didn't reject Christianity. It used Christian moral categories, uh, which had been developed throughout the long history of Christianity through to the Middle Ages. But so I think the West is making a terrible mistake turning on its own traditions. And I think liberalism is in the West is going crazy. The question of affluence. So affluence is a big tradition, a big challenge to religious belief, because I believe, Matt, that every human being stands one instant away from oblivion, especially if you're an atheist, you believe total oblivion. Every human life ends in tragedy and every human being needs God's mercy. But if you are very affluent and in reasonably good health, uh, you can fool yourself into thinking that you don't need God's mercy. So affluence has certainly been a challenge to religious belief. It doesn't seem to be eroding religious belief in Asian countries in the way that it has in the West. Uh, you know, South Korea, Singapore is very determined to hang on to its traditions. Uh, I think Shintoism uh, and, and Buddhism are as strong in Japan really as they were 50 years ago. And even the West itself, was affluent for a long time before it became irreligious. I mean, there was a tremendous revival in religious intensity um, after the Enlightenment and then also after World War II. I mean, Western yeah. societies were more religious in the 1950s than they were in the 1920s, and yet they were a lot more affluent. I wonder whether it's not exactly just affluence and freedom from despair, but rather the incredibly disorienting quality of uh, the sexual revolution, which I think mm. is very hard for people to live with, um, and first television and then the digital invasion of the human consciousness, uh, which can have a quite a radical effect on, on you know, revolutionising a person's consciousness and cutting them off, oddly enough, cutting them off from the sustaining human traditions, flooding them. I mean, Henry Kissinger, not in a religious context, but he, he captured this well once when he said, um, the current generation has more instant access to knowledge than any generation in history because of the internet. And he said, less access to wisdom and less ability to put the knowledge in some sort of meaningful context than any generation in history. Now, he wasn't saying that from a religious point of view, but I think there's a lot of truth in, in that observation. Mm -hmm.
Mm. I'm going to ask you a bit of a selfish question here because I, I committed Catholic like yourself. Uh, just speaking about, you mentioned the uh, the the rise of Christianity in China and the difficulty of the Communist Party controlling it. Uh, what is your view, though, if you have one, on on the Catholic Church in particular and Pope Francis's, if you, I don't think it's been described like this, but Concord dot, dot almost uh, with uh, with with uh, the Chinese Communist Party and, and the and the and the uh, appointment of bishops. Well, I think it was probably a mistake. Um, <clears throat> it is, you know, there are different shades to the issues. So what they've basically done, the the Vatican was, I think, acting from good motives and maybe some not-so-good motives. What the Vatican wanted to achieve, and I interviewed the Vatican Foreign Minister about this, was to make it normal for a Chinese citizen to be a Catholic and not to suffer any penalty. But to try to get to that position, it accepted that the patriotic church, which had always accepted the ultimate authority of the Chinese Communist Party over the ultimate authority of of the Pope or the church or even the gospels, uh, that that was the authentic expression of Catholicism and that the, the very brave underground church had to amalgamate with the patriotic church and also accept the dominance of the Chinese Communist Party. And one of the things the Vatican ceded was that uh, the Chinese government would have a veto over the appointment of bishops. Now, the documents of the Second, Second Vatican Council say that that is not to be the case in any country in the world, but it is in fact the case in a lot of authoritarian countries. You know, the Vietnamese government has some say in the appointment of Catholic bishops. Oddly enough, my great hero, Pope John Paul II, only became uh, an archbishop because the communists vetoed all the people that the church chose ahead of him. So, you know, the communists made a tremendous mistake in thinking that John Paul II was the best candidate from their point of view. But also, I do think the Vatican uh, has sent out a subtext here that it is sort of giving into the Chinese Communist Party. And it seems, as far as we can gather, that most of the underground Catholics didn't want the Vatican to do this. I mean, many of them had suffered terrible terms of imprisonment, and a lot of them had gone to their death out of fidelity to the papacy and the magisterium of the papacy and the teachings of the Catholic Church, and then to be just sort of told, well, look, we changed our mind, that doesn't matter anymore. Uh, I think that's a great... Uh, I don't want to be too condemning of the Vatican because I can see the arguments on both sides. Well, but I think I, overall that was a mistake. I don't rely on access to the foreign affairs uh, departments of the Vatican, so I'll be a bit more critical. I, I am very concerned about it. But I then have ultimate faith, too, that the, the Catholic Church goes through uh, enormous cycles of uh, uh, doing wonderful things and maybe not so wonderful, but ultimately it ends up on, a, on an upward trajectory. So let's hope, I suppose, that uh, the, the future... John Paul II is being appointed as an archbishop uh, soon in uh, in China. Uh, and, yes, uh, indeed. That, that, that very well could be an outcome uh, from this because the Lord does work in mysterious ways. But, I, I, I mean, uh, now that we're talking of China and, and uh, <laughs> had a, has having, uh, having an enormous impact on the world, uh, particularly now with the, the coronavirus, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you've written more recently, which I think is some of the best commentary around the issue, particularly the long-term effects potentially of this uh, this virus. Uh, you wrote a few weeks ago in The Australian that, in your view, 
the virus has killed globalisation as we know it. I suppose, could you just flesh out a bit what you mean by that and what that might mean particularly for countries uh, like China and others in the Asian region, which have themselves, we sometimes forget, they've been able to build up on the back of globalisation and if it is to end or end in its current form, what does that mean for our region and then ultimately for Australia? Well, Matt, of course, there's a bit of crystal ball gazing here and like every other crystal ball gazer, you know, one thing you can be sure of, my predictions will be wrong, but um, I do think, well, there are some very immediate practical things. The world cannot any longer have faith in these just-in-time supply chains uh, because the coronavirus has shown us that supply chains can be radically disrupted by things we don't expect. So that's one thing. Second thing is the world cannot any longer allow China to dominate key strategic industries. So a lot of these trends existed before coronavirus came along, but coronavirus will accelerate them. So all the Five Eyes countries, Britain, Australia, uh, Canada, the United States and New Zealand, are working together to find to make sure that there are alternatives to Chinese companies like Huawei in 5G telcos equipment. Now, that was underway before coronavirus came along, but then coronavirus came along and we found that China supplies 95% of American antibiotics and probably a similar proportion of Australian antibiotics. Uh, China dominates the chemical reagents you need in these testing kits. So the world is not going to allow that any longer. But I do think coronavirus... Uh, impacts globalization more broadly in a whole lot of ways. First of all, even when we get out of this virus, we're not going to have anything like open borders any longer. So no country has really had absolutely open borders. Maybe Angela Merkel had it in Europe for a little while, but it was an ideal of globalization to have open borders. Now, I'm a very pro-immigration person, but I always want the government to be in control of it. Well, even the ideal of open borders now is gone. Nobody's interested in that. Even Germany reinstated internal borders within Europe to cope with this crisis. And it's clear now that nations need to be able to control their borders. I I do think um, the complexity of global supply chains is going to have to be uh, made a lot simpler. The whole East Asian dimension... um, is fascinating because East Asia doesn't really predominantly operate on the basis of free trade. It operates on the basis of very complex uh, interlinked supply chains, but it essentially uh, runs a sort of a state-led capitalism. I mean, this is a tremendous generalisation. There's obviously huge diversity within East Asia, but the whole East Asian growth model from Japan in the 1950s through to China today has been one variety or another of government-led, national, producer-focused enterprises, which then took advantage of, uh, and I'm not not being anti-Asian here, but I mean, they they just took wholesome advantage of the great big giant markets of North America and Western Europe. But as the Asian economies became so much bigger, the ability of the United States in particular and Western Europe to simply absorb all their all the goods that were created by them without real reciprocal market access, uh, it, it just doesn't work anymore. So the theory of free trade 
doesn't work if a huge chunk of the economy doesn't operate under free trade principles. It works all right if a few little outliers don't operate under free trade principles, but it doesn't work if you've got a, an economy as big as China, which doesn't doesn't remotely play by the rules. Now, I think we've already seen with Donald Trump and Boris Johnson a more the centre-right, Matt, and I don't mean to implicate the Australian centre-right in this, but they've morphed away from the old traditional free market dogmatism towards a more what I might call a national capacity or, um, you know, what some Americans, Tyler Cohen and so on, call a, a state capacity kind of centre-right position. Now, in Australia, we destroyed our manufacturing industry in a fit of silliness, in my view. I think we want to have a, a manufacturing industry back. A lot of countries will want to have this. Uh, it might be a little less hyper-efficient than globalisation was, but there aren't. it's not a binary choice. You don't go either 1950s industrial museum on the one hand or Manhattan, New York, uh, Hong Kong, pure services economy on the other hand. A nation can find somewhere in between. You want to have, be able to supply yourself in critical strategic needs and you want to have a manufacturing base because they're good middle-class jobs uh, and they give you other industrial capacities. So I think this is going to be a big ch challenge for East Asia because its growth model doesn't isn't going to work in the future in the way that it worked in the past. What do you think that means for our country, though? I mean, we have, as you say, uh, we, we have uh, uh, completely almost moved away from our manufacturing industry. And, and talking to you, I'm very concerned about that myself. Uh, the last decade was the first decade on record where our manufacturing industry in Australia actually went backwards in uh, in absolute value, in real absolute terms. Uh, it's obviously been a declining share of our economy for much longer. Uh, uh, but what does that mean for us? Because really the last 20 years, uh, we have benefited significantly from uh, China's admission to the World Trade Organization, unbelievable economic growth that's occurred and therefore the consequent demand for our commodities is this going to be a hit to our wealth or, or our economic vitality, you think, and what should we do in response to that? Well, certainly the decline in global growth will be a hit to our economy, but I do think we need to resurrect a manufacturing industry. And Matt, I'm really passionately concerned about this. Globalisation in one way worked very well for Australia. We made our living out of minerals and uh, to a lesser extent agriculture. In our top 10 export markets, the only things that are not minerals or agriculture are higher education and tourism. Uh, so we don't make anything complex in this country on any scale that counts. <clears throat> there was a fascinating and I think terrifying study out of Harvard a few months ago, which said that for its level of affluence, Australia is the least complex economy in the world. Now we ran ourselves very well but the structure of our economy was something like Nauru when it was the phosphate export king. For a little while, Nauru was the per capita, the richest country in the world. So it sold phosphate to everybody, made a lot of money, and then used that money to purchase an affluent lifestyle. It had an airline, Air Nauru, and so on. And now Australia is a pretty well-run country. So we have used our wealth to build up good institutions which have served us superbly during coronavirus and so on. But when the Hawke-Keating government uh, ripped out all the old 
uh, industrial uh, structures of Australia, the idea was that we would become better and leaner in our industry, not that our industry would disappear. Now, since then, we've had massive immigration, which I thoroughly support. But the idea of immigration was that you'd be a bigger, more diverse, more complex economy, and you'd be able to have internal competition because you'd be so much bigger. But in fact, over the last 30 years, our economy has become simpler. We produce fewer things. Our top three exports are natural gas, coal and iron ore. Now, I'm a very strong supporter of natural gas, coal and iron ore. I think I've got the order in reverse there. I think iron ore is, is number one. But it's not really satisfactory for Australia just to be almost mono monocultural economically, just just digging up our our resources. I think it's tragic that we lost our car making industry. Every country in the world that has a car making industry offers subsidies to it. And yet we got hung up over offering $350 million worth of subsidies. But look at the thousands of apprentices and the real industrial training and industrial capability we derived out of that. That's a better way to spend $350 million than any amount of TAFE institutes or anything like that. And when you lose your industrial base, you don't have the capability quickly to move into anything else. So the, your government, with my support, is building a domestic naval shipbuilding industry. But we have shortages of welders and tradesmen and so on uh, to do very basic things on naval shipbuilding because we have so little industry. Uh, the Harvard report that I referred to actually developed, uh, recommended that Australia should take you know, least developed country or developing country mechanisms and identify industries and pick winners and so on, because it had to develop some complex industries. We do do some very complex things in medical research and so on, but we do it all at such a tiny scale that it has no economic impact. It's it's a lovely thing for us to do. And, you know, we run wonderful hospitals and so on. But I think it's crazy for us to derive all this enormous income from minerals and agriculture, and then not do anything with it. So the first thing we should do is is uh, metals processing, uh, food manufacturing. Uh, we're the third biggest, um, no, we're the first biggest, we're the biggest natural gas exporter in the world, but where's our petrochemicals industry? Now, I think this is a challenge to both political parties. It's a bit of a challenge to the centre-right because you can't just leave it to the market. It doesn't work that way. East Asia has shown us that. In reality, America has shown us that as well. I mean, the greatest industrial force in America the last 60 years was the Pentagon. That was a wholly government-owned enterprise. Now, it is true that California has developed the digital economy, uh, but even then, um, Silicon Valley was based on its closeness to Stanford University. The Boston uh, High Tech Corridor is based on its access to Harvard and MIT. All these things have, have needed government leadership. And for a country like us, we need that too. And my final thought to you, Matt, is we are 26 million people, 26 million of the richest people in the world. Right next door to us, there are another 5 million New Zealanders. Not as rich as us, but very rich by world standards. That means we have a domestic market where we have no problems about distance of 31 million people. Manufacturing in Western countries now is a high-tech, well-paid business. It's not a sweatshop where you've got to pay people $1 an hour or something. 
if we don't have a manufacturing industry, that's because we've chosen not to. And I think as a nation, we have to make a national project out of creating manufacturing. We've got to do it shrewdly and cleverly. I was very encouraged to see the, the government talking about this a lot just lately. I think we need to do it for national security reasons, for economic diversity reasons, and for national resilience uh, reasons. Well, I think you're making a lot of sense there, Greg. I, I wanted to take you up on, on one point. Uh, you mentioned about the concept that we've been talking about, about state capacity, uh, uh, capitalism or libertarianism. Uh, and you did, I think, rightly say that if we're going to pursue a strategy of expanding manufacturing in Australia, there will have to be some degree of government involvement to kick it along. Uh, do we have the capacity to do that? Like, this concept of state capacity capitalism obviously requires a certain degree of professionalism and capacity within the public sector. And I'm not making this comment to disparage uh, public servants in Australia, but their skill set uh, over the last 30 years has not really evolved or included uh, the kind of approaches you see in, say, East Asia to direct business and manufacturing in a strategic and, and considered way. Uh, I mean, can we do this here? And what, what maybe do we need to, to do to, to adjust if we want to develop this strategy? Well, I think that's right, Matt. I think we probably don't have the capacity, and that's not a criticism of uh, the people at the top of our public service or anything. They're, they're brilliant people, but they naturally operate within the national paradigm. The national paradigm was set really in the Hawke-Keating years and, and advanced in the Howard Costello years. And, and in many ways, it was very good. I mean, we're a very well-run country and Howard deserves enormous credit for, for putting money in the bank for us so that when this crisis came along, at least we had a good financial position from which to address it. But your underlying point is dead right. We used to have so, you know, Menzies is often um, derided by people on both the left and the right. And sometimes people on the right deride Menzies because they say he wasn't really a pure free market capitalist. But what Menzies understood, he was operating in the wake of World War II. He understood that you could have real big security challenges in this country. And what he set about doing was building economic and social capacity in Australia. His was a job of post-war nation building, and this involved immigration, construction, snowy mountains, university expansion, and universities in those days weren't the sort of locus of madness which they are now. You know, they were, they were pretty practical and pretty focused. Um, if we decide to do this, we can do it, but it requires leadership from guys like you and from the political class because it, you couldn't expect the public servants to do this, as it were, absent political leadership. And in, in fact, it'd be wrong for them to try to do it unless they were given a mandate by their political leaders. Now, it's true that we will have to develop the capacity, but you know, when Israel began building a nation and when Menzies began his post-war reconstruction in 1949, we didn't have the capacity then either, but we, re we recruited very, very good people to run these projects. And of course, you know, we made plenty of mistakes, but overall, uh, we were able to do it. And I think the critical thing now is for a government, and I think Scott Morrison uh, has a tremendous opportunity here, 
free from dogma, operating on some principles. Of course, I'm not for a minute. We, we don't. We're not going to become socialists or anything. The whole of East Asia, and I'm not suggesting we replicate their model exactly, but they're not socialists either. But they are. They do see government as having a central partnership role. In reality, of course, even our great mining industries and so on have required governments to build mm, ports right. and infrastructure and provide proper tax regimes and have diesel fuel rebates and all the rest of it. But somehow or other, for 20 or 30 years, manufacturing became equated in the official Canberra mind and across both political parties with the dull, failing, old economy. And what we were going to do was create a fabulous, new, rich, wonderful economy. In fact, what we did was just simplify our economy so we're a nation of miners, farmers and baristas. Well, you, you have to be a bit more than that. So this is very long-winded to me, Matt, but I, I think we can do it. We may not have the capacity now, but a government which leads us in this direction will find that it gets a lot of support and it will be able to recruit very smart people. And Australians, I think, want to build their nation. They are begging to be led in this direction. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right, Greg, and uh, hopefully you can keep writing those weekly columns uh, to make this point because we will need to push back against uh, to change. This will be a change uh, in direction, as you said, uh, that has to some extent been a Canberra consensus. And when I worked there in Canberra, I definitely felt it that anything to do with manufacturing was to some degree looked down on, uh, I think very unfortunately. So hopefully we can overcome that prejudice and, uh, and rebuild our country, as you have said. I want to finish on a lighter note that... Um, one positive, I think, uh, we've got to take some silver linings out of this terrible, terrible crisis, has been that uh, lately I've been having to live stream mass at home, like many others. But that has meant that I haven't had to sit through the god-awful dirges and hymns that uh, have uh, have infected uh, the Catholic liturgy since the Vatican. I'm just getting your views on that. I know you wrote about it in the, in that book we mentioned before. Yes, indeed, Matt. Now, sort of, I try in in this book and generally to be a very non-denominational. Christian. I mean, I'm a Catholic. I'm not running away from that at all. I'm a practicing Catholic. But but my approach in the book was to be non-denominational. And I tried not to be, I tried to look at people who were doing well in Christianity. The only thing I allowed myself to be really critical of, I mean, apart from dealing with terrible, shocking issues that are very serious of sins that Christians have committed, but the only practice thing I allowed myself to be critical of was the terrible folk hymns in Catholic masses these days. I mean, we have the most sublime and magnificent musical tradition in the history of the human race in Catholic uh, worship music. You know, um, a priest, a very young priest, and of course a terrific traditionalist at, a, at our parish not so long ago played in Latin that beautiful hymn, Veni, Veni, Emmanuel. And it was so breathtakingly beautiful. It was as if, it was as if the gates of heaven had been opened and some light had been shone upon our church that day. But then the following week we went back to, you know, strummer, 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 kumbaya, kumbaya, mm. you know, mm. we are all flowers or something. And the problem is when when the church decided to go down the road of popular music was at the very worst moment in the 1960s when folk music had its one totally undeserved moment of popularity. And the whole world moved on from that. But our beloved Holy Mother Church, you know, it doesn't change its mind for a thousand years and then it makes a mistake and it's not going to change back for another three or four hundred years, you know. 
So everywhere else in the world has moved on now. You don't have this terrible guitar, you know, three-chord tuneless ditty stuff anywhere else but in in sort of middle register Catholic parishes. But uh, I there are wonderful signs of hope there because any young priest these days tends to be attracted to the priesthood against all the prevailing culture and they tend to be in love with the Catholic tradition. Um, the There is modern music, which is very beautiful. You know, the hymns of the Australian poet James Macaulay. I wish we would rediscover those. Uh, they are genuinely beautiful hymns in a, in a modern idiom. And, you know, it is dawning on people that this terrible um, music, which was meant to be a breath of fresh air against the glorious beauty of Gregorian chant, uh, just hasn't worked. And my... I do detect across parishes that things are uh, getting a bit better. But, you know, Confucius said, they said to Confucius, what would you do to reform the world? And he said, first, abolish all lawyers, I think. Well, my my um, prescription was abolish all guitars. But maybe that just <laughs> makes me a grumpy old man. And I, I say this with a smile on my face. And no well, well, hopefully we don't have too many guitar-playing lawyers listening to the podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. Uh, it's great Thanks, to have Bob. a very detailed, uh, thoughtful discussion about the future. There will be a, a bright future for our country once we get through all this. So thank you very much. Look forward to catching up in person soon. Thanks and uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You'll be listening to Weatherboard and Iron. Don't forget to subscribe uh, through your favourite podcast app, Spotify, uh, Pocket Casts, Apple, we're on all those things, or you can go to weatherboard9.com.au. Thank you very much uh, and uh, keep safe.